Welcome to the Sports Nutritionist Podcast. At the association, we've been getting asked, and I've been probably been getting asked to do a podcast now for the better part of the last four years, and I've been putting it off um, for quite some time. And up until recently, we really didn't even entertain that notion, but we've been catching up with a lot of colleagues, and uh, we've been getting a lot of requests for this. So we thought, hey, what the hell? Four years on, let's get into an already saturated market and put out another podcast. Uh, but unlike a lot of the nutrition podcasts and sports nutrition podcasts that exist at the moment, this one is for you, the professional sports nutritionist. So we're going to be talking to professionals in the industry who are practicing. We're going to be talking to them about their professional experience and insights to hopefully help you, the audience, the sports nutritionist or sports dietitians or dietitians or nutritionists or just nutrition professional for that matter, help you better understand the career path that you're on and provide you with some valuable insights so that hopefully we can learn from each other's mistakes and experience, right? Like I, in the last 12 years, have made a lot of personal and professional mistakes in my practice. And if I can help you mitigate and navigate these the minefields that is the profession then i'd we'd be doing a really good thing here so without further ado we're going to get into today's episode which is with aiden the dietitian or aiden muir his instagram handles aiden the dietitian uh he works for ideal nutrition he's been practicing for the last four years he coaches primarily powerlifters but he does a little bit of gen pop as well and so within this episode we cover obviously his background as a professional some of the things that he has done clinically with some really good success uh he provides also a little bit of insight as to working as a dietitian and then what the job market's like as well because this is something that's sort of not really spoken about for aspiring dietitians especially within australia uh while they're studying and then they sort of get out and graduate and they realize it's sort of a little bit different to what they expect then we look at some of the research and applications with collagen with connective tissue injuries and then we start talking about some industry-funded research and then effects of supplements in gut health so, Aiden, give me a rundown about who you are. I know who you are. Yeah. We play recreational basketball together <laughs> when, my, when I'm not injured. Um, but give me a run, give, give everyone watching a rundown of who you are, what you do, where you've come from. Yeah. So, Aiden Muir, Aiden the Dietitian on Instagram. Um, I am a dietitian. I see clients. I see 30 ish people per week. Mm -hmm. um, where do I come from? I, I studied at CSU Wagga Wagga. So, I started a four year degree university there started my own business for a little bit that didn't go great and i learned that i needed experience needed to learn from someone else went to work for somebody else for about two and a half years took on another job after that and then slowly transitioned to doing what i do now and have been doing for the last year and a half two years now and that's about a four and a half year journey total post-university now okay sweet man and so you're an APD, accredited yep. practicing dietitian. Yeah. You're also an AS. I think we just call it accredited sports dietitian. I ASD, don't think there's yeah. an abbreviation. Yeah. There. Okay. Accredited sports dietitian as well. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And so for anyone watching, listening, um, that involves a two-year postgraduate process as well once you finish. So yep. your total study time to become accredited sports dietitian is a six-year process yep, six minimum. minimum. Um, some people are about seven to eight, depending on the pathway they take there as well. So you work primarily with sports athletes. Yeah, so I'm 50-50. So 50% of my clients are athletes, mostly powerlifters, strength athletes, um, some off-season bodybuilders. I don't do comp preps or anything like that, but mm. strength athletes. Is there a reason that you don't do comp preps? A few reasons. One, I, I don't want to borrow of it like in terms <laughs> yeah. like from, from the health perspective, like I just I just don't have an interest in that. Two, I personally 
have never put myself in a position where I've gotten that lean. Mm. And I would want the personal experience of having done that before prepping someone. And then three, I don't know what stage leanness looks like. As in, I can't look at somebody and be like, yeah, yeah you're about three weeks dieting away from being where you need to be. Mm. Like, I don't know the exact numbers. And I'm just like, there's so many people better at this than I am. Like, I yeah. think that's right. No, look, yeah. I completely agree. Like, so we do the prep program, right? Yeah. Which is like, a, it's for those who are openly and graduate accredited with us. So they've got to have their degree, meet the cert compliance criteria. If they haven't, you know, done a dual degree in say like ex-phys and dietetics, then we're like, oh, right. You got to do a couple of these modules within the program. So that way you're compliant. Um, those people can then enroll into this program. It's a six month theoretical based program with a 12 month practical component. Um, and so that's where Joey, Kyle, Brandon, those guys come in, Jack and Tiara, the bodybuilding dietitians, um, they're involved in this program. And this is like, I'm, I'm involved in the curation and I'm like, I help with like compliance yeah. and competencies and stuff. But one of the things that when we were fleshing this out that I was like, how do you guys do this? Especially is like online because a lot, yeah. you know, the, the direction that coaching has gone in in the last how many years has been online. I'm like, how do you look at weekly check-in photos and yeah. see difference? Yeah. yeah like I have no I clue. Well, yeah. Like that, and that's an art form that really can only come with experience. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that they work on with the people as well. Um, and you know, like I've prepped, I've I prepped probably like nine, 10 years ago. Uh, Brody, I'm sure we'll be able to pull some photos up <laughs> and show, show, show my leanness. I, I hospitalized myself, right? I was immuno, I was immunosuppressed. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, what, holy crap. It was about 10 years ago now. So 2011 floods had happened and I was like, I was just PTing, doing boot camps out in the park and you know how like all the flooding had all like that dirty water and stuff that like came up. So there was like, there was all like, there was all this like, um, staff, people getting staff and like sepsis and yeah, stuff right. from all the floods that had happened. So I'm in a boot camp and the back of my leg got a scratch and bam, I was in hospital with yeah, cellulitis damn. for like a week and a half. Yeah. yeah. So that hindered my ability to um, uh, get on stage. So I got, I was probably like two weeks out. I was pretty lean. Yeah. Definitely like lean enough to do well at the time. But as we've seen with the trend of competitions yeah. in the last, especially I'd say the last like seven years, like the, the, the quality of leanness and the degree that people are getting like peeled for competition is crazy. So yeah, look, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I would, would never press someone, yeah. but I would prefer to work with like athletes. So um, I found a really interesting man that you said 50-50 gen pop yeah. to athletes. Gen pop just because they're the bread and butter. I, I To be honest, I love powerlifting. Yeah. My main main interest, all these kind of things. But if all I saw it day in, day out, day in, day out is powerlifting, it's just the same stuff over and over and over and over. And like, I love it, but I don't want it to be all that I do. Mm. I like doing other stuff. Um probably bad from a business perspective, niching down is probably the way to go, but like it makes sense to me. It's what I want to do. Um, so the other 50% is just general weight loss clients, maybe some health conditions and a lot of IBS stuff as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. And so talking about like IBS and gut health, right? Yeah. Where do you stand on that? Because there's a lot of marketing and yeah. hype and there's a lot of ev like apparent evidence-based or evidence-informed people applying things. Yeah. Especially in like the IBS and gut health world. Yeah. What are your sort of thoughts on that? It's a pretty broad topic. Like I don't want to oversimplify it, but like the biggest tool in my toolkit is the low FODMAP diet. Yeah. Somebody's got diarrhea, sometimes constipation, less effective for that or bloating. Like honestly, over my four and a half year career, diarrhea and bloating at the moment, I've had a 100% success rate with the low FODMAP diet. That doesn't line up with the data. The research shows like a 50 to 80% success rate. Mm. But like at the moment, that's what I'm saying is the best tool in my toolkit because it has worked 
every time. Yeah. Um, there's obviously more nuance. You've got to reintroduce foods. You've got to manage stress because stress is one like for perspective. If people do gut directed hypnosis or hypnotherapy, it's got about an 80% success rate for these same symptoms. Mm. It's kind of like that's more effective than the research is showing for FODMAPs. So it's obviously like a big, big component. And then the other stuff is just playing around with types of fibers, amounts, and then also diversity. Like I'm looking long-term. Like whenever everyone's talking about like benefits of probiotics and stuff like that, there can be benefits with that. But getting greater than 30 different plant-based foods per week is pretty strongly associated with an overall healthy gut microbiome. Mm. So it's kind of like that's something that most people who are having issues should probably be working towards long-term. Mm. And it's really hard to get. Yeah. It, it, like, I don't, like I don't think people understand like – when the research came out, what was it like two years ago? Yeah, and, then, yeah. and they looked at just, just I think it was just the state census stuff where they were looking at like plant intake. Yeah. Um, just, you know, state by state within the country. And within Queensland, it was less than 7% of the adult population yeah. consumed the recommended fruit and veg. Fruit and veg yeah. So of the recommended fruit and veg, and that being less than 7%, how many of that 7% do you think then consume 30 different types of plant matter? Yeah, exactly. And it's a crazy one. And like on top of that, with that data, it's like, well, what percentage of Australians are vegan? Mm. What percentage of vegetarian? Because they're more likely to make up that percentage as well. So it's in like most people who are omnivorous are not getting that. And yeah. it's like, yeah, what percentage are doing that? And like, there's obviously easy ways. Like one thing that comes to mind, if you normally have like 30 grams of almonds, could have 30 grams of mixed nuts. Suddenly you've got like six of your 30 for the week versus having one of your 30, like little things like that obviously make a difference. But I also like on that topic with bodybuilders, this is the big one I see where like I see somebody who's just done a comp prep and they've had like (laughs) seven different foods for the last 12 weeks. weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And like, then they're having issues due to low energy availability, like complex topic, but like, yeah, that's something that has also gone on. Like they've been very, very narrow with their food intake and that's obviously going to play a role in this, post comp yeah i remember seeing bodybuilders um like the trend's not as like it's not as common practice as what i'd see now but you know like sort of like five years ago every supplement store owner would be a bodybuilder who's prepping and the supplement stores were blowing up there were the you know the however many mass nutrition stores nationally when luke mcnally was at his prime and stuff and um these these people would be like prepping and I'd be like, cool, what are you doing? You know, ask them about their nutrition and stuff because I was practicing sports nutrition at the time, studying it. And um, they'd be telling me, oh, you know, I'm following this. I'm going to nail it, you know, like 32 weeks like this. I was like, oh, yeah, see how your gut goes. Like with that, I'm not going to offer any advice. I'll just like mention mention it in passing and stuff. Just keep it the conversation light. Go back in <laughs> once they'd finished, you know, their prep and they're like, oh, I'm having the worst time. I can't handle the bloating. It's keeping me up all night. Yeah. Like, like I can't keep food down pissing out my ass like 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 it's really bad i've been to the bathroom 10 times and i'm like okay cool what are you doing like and they're like oh you know like just gone into my like um what was it like rebound rebound plan was like the big big sort of commonality for people prepping back in the day and then um they're like they've introduced all these other foods and they can't handle it yeah and then two weeks later they're telling me about like this like epic protocol that they're following with like sauerkraut and that that was going to fix it and i just remember like beating my head against yeah the wall with like it. it's a little bit more complex than yeah, that right? <laughs> but like that's what these experts are saying it's like have sauerkraut and follow yeah. my specific plan and you're going to be fine and yeah have some apple cider vinegar and yeah you're sorted <laughs> yeah pretty much right yeah and they had apple cider vinegar like yeah. the person i'm thinking of like two weeks later that's what they're having and i was just like oh man like i don't envy you yeah but um you were talking about the FODMAP diet before. Mm-hmm. For people who aren't familiar with it, can yeah. you explain that? 
Yes, a difficult one to explain. So it's fermentable forms of carbohydrate that typically in your large intestine will help produce gas basically Mm. is what it is. You could think of it as more difficult to digest foods. Like it's a pretty like complex list of foods, like certain vegetables, certain fruits. Um, Wheat has fructans in it, like Mm. um, garlic, onions, like, and it's on that topic. I know I'm getting sidetracked, but like fructans in wheat typically cause symptoms in about 14% of the population, yeah, which very strongly overlaps with what a lot of people would call um, gluten intolerance or yeah. gluten sensitivity. It's a very, very strong overlap and it seems to be more likely to be causing the symptoms. At the end of the day, it doesn't change what people do, but it's more likely to be fructans. It's more likely to be a FODMAP issue mm. than specifically gluten. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. It's just like they produce gas in the intestines and that causes the bloating. Um, potentially they can draw in water, which is what could cause a diarrhea. And like the mechanism for constipation, which will make you understand why it's less effective constipation is basically the gas production compacts the fecal matter, which makes it harder to pass, Mm. which is like why it seems to be about like 20% effective for constipation, whereas like way more effective for those other two. Mm -hmm. And so I've previously done a FODMAP diet. Yeah. can you explain to people, like, I guess the degree of difficulty yeah, that someone who's got no idea. So it's like, hey, yeah, the, like, hey, there's this thing called FODMAPs. It's just like hard to break down, primarily carbohydrate. It's yeah. in foods that you're really not aware of. Like, you've got it. Like, if you think, hey, I got to eat fruit and veg, yeah, and like half of the fruit and veg that you're thinking of for the like the most common person, it means that you can't have those either, or like certain healthy foods that they would think are healthy foods. It's not just like cutting out and eliminating yeah. junk food. For a lot of them. So like I have a lot to say on that. And basically the first thing is you only go down that route if it's going to improve your quality of life. It's hard to do this. You have to be having decent symptoms, like pretty symptoms are really negatively affecting your quality of life for it to be worth it. Another point is, I I don't know how how you did it, but I've I've never seen somebody do it well without a dietitian. And like, I'm not one to like plug dietitians for every cause or whatever. Like I'm not that kind of person. But just the fact I've been in this industry a long time, I've never seen somebody do it well without a mm. dietitian. It's it's showing how hard it is. And then the third thing is like some of these fruits and vegetables, without a lot of knowledge, it looks like there's no rhyme or reason. It's just mm. like this random list almost. So like if somebody is going to do it, the only way I recommend doing it is getting the Monash FODMAP app or some equivalent where you can actually search foods and literally every time you go to eat something, search every individual ingredient and seeing mm. if like it's a pretty difficult process and like the last thing i'll say on that is a lot of people who do it by themselves cut out fodmaps see an improvement in symptoms and then reintroduce and everything like the opposite a lot of people don't want to reintroduce stuff yeah okay like they because they like they had issues and now they don't so what do they want yeah, to do okay. they don't want to stay restricted obviously that affects quality of life that could affect your micronutrient intake to a certain yeah. degree affect your fiber intake um, but what did we just talk about? Like the more diversity of plant-based foods, the better from an overall gut microbiome perspective, most likely. Mm. This is cutting out a lot of good prebiotic foods. Yeah. It's cutting out a lot of foods that are good for gut bacteria. You don't want to be overly restricted when you can reintroduce foods. And it's just all about reintroducing a system systematic way so that you get the balance between minimal symptoms while reintroducing as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. So the FODMAP diet effectively and like the reintroduction process effectively is just a specifically tailored form of like the elimina- uh, an elimination diet. 100%. Yeah. And like this entire process, like with most of my clients, there's obviously variation, but I often do the low FODMAP phase for four weeks. And then the total process takes over 10 weeks mm. because the reintroduction phase is so 
um, systematic with washout phases and stuff like that. So there's no overlap between testing foods. So that way you actually definitely figure out what causes symptoms yeah. without having to be like, oh, but it could have been X, Y, and Z. Mm. Like, you know, pretty much for sure. It's not that simple, but you give, get a pretty good idea. Mm. Yeah. So when I did it, it was, um, it was a friend of mine was going through the process that had like a big healthcare. So again, like quality of life, this was really important. So they had to go down that road and I was just doing it to support them. Yeah, bit of support, yeah. Um, and, you know, fortunately for me, a lot of my friends, colleagues, peers at the time were dietitians. Yeah. And so I guess when you were saying like the success rate of it was predicated by working with a dietitian, I'm assuming you're coming from the place of, so that way you've, you're getting the feedback to troubleshoot feedback, and ask yeah. questions. So two things, accountability, as, as you know, it's hard. That's yeah. one thing, but feedback. Like really like, hard. Yeah. Like I want to, I want to stress this. So like people understand, Yeah. like people talk about like, oh, tracking your food and yeah. tracking your macros only two minutes of the day. To me, I'm like, no, Fun. that's a six month process. Yeah. And it's fucking hard. Like tracking your food and learning what's in food is fucking hard. Yeah. FODMAPs is probably 10 times harder than that. Yeah. Like my standard protocol is I'll see somebody, tell them how to do it. Previously, I would even just like let it sink in for a little bit before we actually start. But say I see somebody, we start it. I see them in two weeks. That's why I do it for four weeks instead of two weeks. Technically, you can do it for two weeks. Mm. It's just that like more than 50% of my clients, They'll even up. that, yeah, like to put it politely, yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, just because it's like going from zero to 100, you've got to know everything and start straight away. Mm. Um, it's it's very hard to do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I guess like that way, like if people can at least understand that it's hard to, yeah, you do that. So like I had the feedback, it made it successful, um, but I, based on my own experience with it, and I only did it for like six weeks and person got the swing of it, I was like, sweet, ask the questions, all that kind of stuff, you know, the emotional support was there. Yeah. Um, and you know, they pressed on with that for the rest of their life. And there was only two things they really had to sort of like eliminate. Yeah. After that. Yeah. yeah. From that point. But, um, yeah, I think that people just underestimate the degree of difficulty sort of required to really succeed. And I, like, I'd be saying like, go see a dietitian every week for the 10 weeks. Yeah. Like, like, because there's a lot of questions. I remember just recalling my own experience. I was texting, emailing yeah like if i didn't have that support and that that, that feedback mechanism and it's not to say that oh, if you see a dietitian every four weeks you should be messaging them yeah three times a week with all your questions that that yeah I, i'd probably like look leave your questions for a weekly appointment because then you can see if it's actually pressing i was i was able to exercise that discretion myself you know yeah being a practitioner anyway so to know not how to waste people's time um, or at least be respectful of their time. But I would say, yeah, go go at least once a week, like for the accountability, but the troubleshooting and questioning as yeah. well. Like you, you're not going to be aware of where you're screwing up. Yeah. And like something that really resonates with me is that like, I noticed it probably took about two years of being a dietitian, doing FODMAPs with clients before I really was like, this food's high FODMAP, this food's low FODMAP. Yeah. Before like I could just like recognize that, mm. which therefore means like, if it took me two years and this is my job, right. <laughs> like the average person, particularly if they're, they're working another job and like this is just on the side that they're trying to do this, like it, it's yeah. hard, yeah. Exactly. So it's funny you say that, right? So you took you two weeks, two, not two weeks, took you two years to learn that as a dietitian. Yeah. So you're in year what now post after, after graduating? This is my fifth year, yeah. Okay, year five. You've been primarily in private practice the whole time? The entire time, yeah. I've worked in like a variety of settings. I've done aged care homes. I've done gyms. I've... um done home visits i've worked in clinics i've done every but it's all been private yep. yep and i mean like some of that's been employed work yep 
was any of that work like full-time employed? Yeah, straight off the bat, that, yeah. Aged care stuff? So that was that was where the variety of settings come into play. So yep. it was like full-time as a contractor working for somebody else yep. and just like whatever work they could find is what I would do basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're going out to a different location every day of the week yeah. effectively. Yeah. yeah, and like medical centers as well. Like it was, yeah, it was a good mix, yeah. Yeah, and would you recommend most graduates sort of that's how they dip their toes? Yes, it's hard to do though. Um, yeah. Very, very few full-time jobs exist. The employer who I worked for was very passionate about the dietetic industry and mm. making sure there was full-time jobs available and he'd try to find work for people if yeah. he could. But like from what I see- It doesn't really exist. Yeah, anymore. like yeah. more than 90% of the jobs are available at one to two days per week. Yeah. And if if I went on LinkedIn and looked at dietitians' resumes, you can see they're working multiple jobs at once, even- yeah multiple years into their career yeah yeah I, I like i would echo that um i would say probably about five years ago because i i had a training at our health center before then so i actually employed dietitians yeah. this is going back about nine years ago now and we had companies that we worked with that we looked at potentially placing at particular centers um just depending um and then i actually uh, like was retained by a private um, anytime fitness or like effectively like collective wellness because it was like wasn't collective wellness the head office but the group had like every franchise within collective wellness so it was like Orange Theories bars bar fitness anytimes there was about fifteen different clubs or something then I was sort of like consulting to their group for the onboarding and training of like all their allied health providers trainers all that kind of stuff I did that for about a three year period. Um, and so I was working with the dietetic companies then as well and looking at like their placements and stuff as well. And it was sort of about the five year, probably about five years ago was when full-time like employing people, especially in private practice, really just started to like dry yeah. up and stop. And so now what you're saying is, yeah, like they're getting them in an employment sense. More than likely now what I'm seeing is like a contracting sense, not even an employee yeah, sense contracting anymore. contracting is very popular, yeah. Um, and like it makes sense because – they aren't consistent hours, the work's up and yeah. down. So based on the work laws, that's sort of, you know, the best direction for them to go in, um, which isn't the best thing that a dietitian yeah. who's just spent the last four years and, I don't know, 60 grand, 80 grand on hex studying wants to hear, um, you know, that, hey, you've got one to two days a week contracting available for yeah, you. Yeah, and it's not guaranteed. Like, you, yeah. you might rock up and there's no clients for you. Like, yeah, exactly. So you, you don't get paid. You're not getting paid, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's sort of the reality of it. It started to really sort of die off in that capacity and, I think um, I think like a lot of people are sort of like they have this misconception because it is such a highly regarded academic yeah and I, field of study yeah it like takes a lot of study most people would assume you yeah wish. and then the other thing people say is like well dietetics is needed more than ever right now like that's the way the population is trending like mm. um, you'd assume there's work for it yeah but at the end of the day there's got to be a demand for dietitians for there to be that work available. How many members are in, are in the DIA? About 6,000. 6,000, yeah. Because there used there was more a few years ago, I think. I'm not sure. I could be wrong on that number, but I think it's around 6,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Maybe 7,000. Yeah, I remember it was around sort of like 10,000. Yeah, I don't know. But like, some, like when I was going through university, my, my course lost its accreditation. And like my understanding is that it was just because, hey, there's too many dietitians in the world. Like yeah. we need to cut somewhere. There was there was a big sort of from like, I, I don't know. This was just like, I don't know personally. I haven't seen the information, but mm. what I was being told by colleagues who were members at the time and stuff, there was a bit of a, like a cull period where yeah, like I course programs, yeah. um, uh, practitioners and stuff. There was like a bit of a mass deregistration and audits going on as well. Like they were pretty full on. So like 7,000 nationally, like, 
I would say it's like good. And I would, I would echo that. Yeah, there's a need for them, but there's a need. I would put a caveat on that and say, there's a need for the right type of practitioner. I agree as well. Yeah. And I would just say that looking at the programs at the moment, like, and like at a really objective level, if we look at it externally, yeah. if you're spending four years or five years or six years studying, being assessed, being lectured at, and your role is primarily coaching people. Yeah. There's a big disconnect between the pathway and then the I guess the 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 demand that is required for that type of professional and how they're being groomed. Yeah. So like like if I'm watching lectures, researching, looking looking at how to interpret research, um, forming my own evidence informed uh, opinions of that, submitting a a research review, whatever it is, and then also at the same time submitting assignments and doing 400 hours of prac across different modalities. To me, I'm like, that's not going to help groom that person. Not the best, to the best use of time. Yeah. yeah. Like there's a lot in there that is relevant, but there's a lot in there that's also not relevant as well that like that time could be better spent if I that's even, the goal. I even think like the subjects are good. I just think that not necessarily like in the assessment modalities are great. I think it's yeah. just the inclusion of the practical stuff, you know? And so- People, it, it, you know, people from the outside looking in, they go, oh, sports nutrition, yeah. Australia and the association stuff, we're all about sports nutrition, like we are. But at the same time, a big part of what we do is we recognize the need for clinical dietetics and we have our risk assessment screening process. And yeah. We, you know, like we generate for some dietitians and the ones that we work with, we generate a lot of referrals specifically based on that triage process and that we have in place. Like yeah. from my experience, that's something that I've seen because I've worked with a lot of, sports nutritionist and like i have gotten referrals because of that process because it is so well like laid out yeah yeah right so they yeah. might be sitting here being like oh are these like you know like are we like oppositional and the reality is like no not yeah. at all it's very collaborative and we can't do what we do without you and for us i mean i guess the other thing is like a lot of people don't know is like we have this if someone does our certificate that's a provisional accreditation that's like your p your p plates like yeah. when you're learning to drive a car and so the way that we've done this and it was, we sort of just fell into it, but the way that we did it was all right, you know, like we want to get something that helps people get scope, but then long-term com compliance auditors and insurers and underwriters really wanted uh, like a minimum standard at a quite a high level for working with nutrition, yeah. um, especially in sports nutrition, right? Because elite athletes and like sporting populations are outliers as well. So you have to have, and they deal with the extremes, right? Extremes of health and performance. And at times they're intrinsically linked and other times, you know, they're, they're completely disconnected from one another, one another. But they really wanted a high minimum standard qualification. I completely agreed with it. I was like, look, everyone needs at least an undergrad or um, a postgrad dip or something like that if you're going to be working with these people. So we've got this like P um, provisional period for three years. But we say, look, after that time, once you know that, this is what you want to be doing and this is like this is the career that you want to have then you got to double down and go not for a certificate yeah. actually get into a postgrad dip with one of the institutes that we like work with um at the moment that's the iopn ioc um holistic performance institute and aut um universities otherwise there's you can just go into an x science program or an yeah. x phys program or a nutrition health science program or a nutrition dietetics program and actually do that and so yeah i guess like we were talking about this before, like people, you know, people will inquire with us and they'll be like, oh, I'm thinking of doing dietetics and I'm looking at this as well. What, what would you recommend? Like my response, and I'd say this to the whole team, I'm like, tell them to do both. Yeah. Because if they're a member of ours, they need to at least have a, that degree or be into that program 
from year three onwards. Yeah. And someone like in your shoes, who's like a dietitian, if you like, and I've always said to them from my own opinion, but I'm, I'm assuming you're going to echo this, um, that if you can enroll in this and like what I say to them is like, if you're in first or second year, just reduce to two subjects, do it then. Yeah. It, it's, it's like that way your study load isn't an issue. It ends up being cheaper than the subject costs anyway for that. But then you've got the ability to do second, third, and fourth year. Yeah. Build up your clients, be working with clients, work on client acquisition, work on referrals, yeah. work on marketing yourself, work on keeping your clients long-term, work on client satisfaction, all this stuff that you really need like years of experience at. And like, there's a few things I want to touch on with that. Like from my experience, like the first thing we, I mentioned this off air, but it's kind of like looking around. Um, I don't know many dietitians who have been in private practice four plus years. Yeah, like, right. Like I want to touch on that because like there, there is exceptions, but it's kind of like the percentages are very low. Like, yeah, but they're outliers. Yeah, they're outliers. Yeah. So it's kind of like, hey, you got three years provisional. <laughs> Most people aren't making it past the three years anyway. Like you, you want to suss it out before you dedicate four years. And then the other thing that we, we didn't really like, I wanted to breeze over, but it's kind of like, I said my business didn't go that well at the start. And like the reason it didn't go well is because not many people booked in. <laughs> like right. it's just because like who, who wants to see somebody who has just graduated and has never worked with clients. Yeah. Like if you're putting yourself in the shoes of a, of a potential client, you look at that person, you're like, wouldn't I want to go see somebody who I know is good? Yeah. Versus testing somebody and checking, like doing that exact same process. You've got all this time to build up, have experience. And when you graduate, you're good to go. You already have clients. You've worked on all those skills of getting clients. You've worked on those coaching skills, all of those kind of things. You don't have to learn it all at once. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And like, dude, it, it's crazy, right? And um, what I was observing when I was recruiting dietitians for my, 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 my center and then also when I was recruiting it for the other, um, you know, for the other facilities and, and uh, like within the group was that they were like, there was this sort of like chip on their shoulder. Where it was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was like, hey, I've just done this. I sh the clients should yeah. come to me. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's just it's just not the reality. And so, so much of what I was doing within that within those roles was the expectation managing yeah. and helping them. I'd be like, "Look, it sucks. I wish the union told you earlier." Yeah, because they get people, they get speakers in, and they you know they talk about how like, real it is. And a few of my like friends and colleagues now are actually presenting at the unions that they went to, and they're saying, "Look, guys, prepare like like like." And like it's you, it, it, you know, it's the wild west out there. You have to be prepared to work. So they're getting yeah. some good information out yeah. there to hopefully expectation manage the students a little bit earlier. But yeah, I was having to do that, and I was, like, I felt bad, but I was like, look, this is a reality. Like, I'm not saying this to upset you. I'm saying yeah. this so hopefully you're aware. We can get you prepared, and then you can start succeeding. Yeah. But if you resist that, it, this these problems will persist the whole time, right? And like on that topic, this is very off topic, but like. I heard a quote, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's like, hey, if you're looking to start a business, you should have people asking you about your services before you've actually started the business. Mm. And like, I think about that heaps because like, hey, when I first started my, my business um, as a dietitian, I remember I'm like, mm, maybe like three people over the years had ever asked me about like nutrition tips, for like, hey, can you help me for free or something? Like, it's probably mm. a bit more than that, but like, it's not that lot that much and i just was like oh if i work hard enough <laughs> people are going to want to see me. right <laughs> and like in hindsight i looked back i was like that was very dumb and like the second time around after i'd been a dietitian for multiple years and i restarted the business and stuff like that there was demand there <laughs> mm, mm. but like that was because i'd been doing it for years and stuff like that by but that time exactly and and but you started creating content yeah. talking about it even during people like especially within social media 
um, you know, people, some dietitians feel a bit like hamstrung with how they can promote themselves. Yeah. Your page serves as a really good example of like what you can do within, you know, within the scope that the DAA is outlined yeah. and still be relevant because I still hear from time to time certain members being like, oh, well, I can't do this and I can't do that and all this yeah. stuff. And it's like, guys, there's so much that you can you do. You can still do. Yeah. yeah. And be effective. And just to be clear, how many followers do you have on Instagram now? <laughs> um, 35.7K. <laughs> I've got 2,400 maybe. I, I don't even know. Yeah. So like, for instance, yeah, you're killing it on social compared to like myself. Our pages do quite well. Australia's got a pretty good following. The association's building. Yeah. The, the other regions, like they're doing all right. But, um, you know, it, it serves in, as an example that you can do really you well. Can, on and there's yeah. like so many people who do it better than me. Like I like I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but like the word I use for a lot of people is I, I felt almost autistic when it came to social media. As in it's mm. like kind of like this did not come naturally to me. Like yeah. this was very much me watching what people were doing better than me and not copying, but like being like, I, I don't know if you know Australian strength coach. Yeah, he he does. He used to Sebastian Sebastian Morrow. Yeah. yeah, he he would do Wednesday Q and A, or he still does it. And like I I would watch that, and I had mates who don't even lift who would who would follow him because he's kind of funny in his stories. Yeah, and like I'm not as funny as him or anything like that. But I saw him do that, and I was like, why can't I do a Q and A? Like why mm. can't I do that? And like I saw somebody doing food comparisons, and once again, why why can't I do that? Like I was taking these like food pictures and like. <laughs> That doesn't like no one cares about that. Like, yeah, it was just looking at like what other people were doing. Success leaves clues, and yeah, yeah, success leaves clues, and doing that every day for multiple years to the point that like, it's not the best, but it's like it was good enough to get progress and build a business. Basically, how, how much do you think that it helps? Like the percentage of your waiting list, you've got a waiting list, right? Yeah. yeah. How much? Like, what? What's the percentage that you would attribute to a particular source? Every, everything comes from Instagram. So like. I do get word of mouth referrals. I yeah. do have coaches like powerlifting coaches who refer to me, but it all stems from Instagram in that a lot of my clients directly come from Instagram. Yeah. All the powerlifting coaches who refer to me follow me on Instagram mm. and all the clients who have been referred from word of mouth from other clients, the original clients found me on Instagram. Yeah. And, and so like I like I gave you uh, like we organized like a bit of big corporate thing that was primarily through Instagram. Yeah. Like we knew each other, but yeah. again through Instagram, right? Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. Like that was a very, very lucky opportunity. I look back on it, I'm super grateful for it. But I'm also I'm also but, like, I, got, but I got to see how you were practicing. Exactly. Because I was putting stuff. it out yeah, there for yeah. the world to see. Like yeah. Yeah, I could see like, you know, that you weren't like really like like really binary in any way. I so I could exercise like, yeah. critical thinking like in my own way to like look at it and be like, yeah hey there's this good thing and i know you'd be really good for it like see how you guys go and go from there yeah exactly and that's also what i think about with the whole like being scared of putting yourself out there. yeah there's gonna be people who aren't gonna like it and stuff mm. like that like i'm sure there's people who get annoyed by me or some of the things i do or don't like it or don't like that I talk about weight loss and stuff like that there's always people who are gonna hate it but at the end of the day if you don't put this stuff out there the people who would like what you're talking about don't see, see it, it. Yeah. yeah and so it, like that i think that's a really good point and i think what what we've got is we've got some um, like graphics, infographics done up that sort of outline our recommended pathway now for a student, someone that comes in completely green. And then obviously you, we can make it bespoke for people that aren't this, you know, completely green person. Um, and we've got some, we've done some uh, like interviews and roundtables with our assessment team talking about their own experience and how that applies to like the model that we've recommended. So someone comes out green and they're like, look, I'm, look at, I'm looking at studying this. So we go, right, do the civilian and applied sports nutrition. What we want is for them, you know, if they want to piggyback their study straight away, that's fine. But we would say, hey, look, spend 12 to 18 months practicing and experiencing the wins and losses. 
and like you have to be prepared to take some L's. Yeah. Like that, like that, that that's a big thing that I want to get through like yeah. across to people is like be prepared to take some L's, yeah. right? Things that like just unexpected losses that you like things that you just weren't expecting that are losses and like good lessons, like L yeah. for loss and lesson, right? Yeah. So that way you can come up, learn from it, put the systems in place to, you know, ensure that that doesn't happen again. You don't make those mistakes. And then at about the 18 month mark, 12 to 18 month mark, then you've got your study. You're still loving it. Enroll in that next level yeah. and start that and then keep the refinement of your systems, your clients. Yeah. Effectively, you know, like you were saying, hey, like a business, I think for a lot of people, look, sports nutritionists, um, dietitians, like 95% of your prospective work is private practice and it's primarily going to be self-employed or at least going to be self-generated. Yeah. Even if you're working for someone else, it's you have to self-generate. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so I think, you know, like like that client acquisition, that client retention, that client experience, that client buy-in, all those systems, you have to refine that the whole time. And I'm sure you experienced this. I experienced it when I was first coming yeah. out as a coach, right? I don't know, like 14 years ago now, 13, 14 years ago, um, was like I would like work on generating clients and I'd generate clients and then I'd stop doing what was generating yeah, in the clients thing, and then yeah. the clients would drop off. Yeah. And then I'd have to like start up again. And it was this like start, stop, sort yeah. of like slowly building up thing. And that's what that's what I have to learn, right? It's like yeah. have like 18 months, 12, 18, 24 months where you're like ready to take some L's, losses and learns. Yeah. And like particularly the coaching process, like I yeah. I know my first 12 months as a practitioner, particularly the first six months were very different to the 12 to 18 months. Mm. Like that 12 to 18 months is where things really start to get together. Like obviously there's stuff I do differently now to what I did back then. But like that's that's a phase I can look back on and be proud of what I was doing. Mm. Whereas like the first six months, there'd be times I'd be doing stuff with people and they'd get to the end of it and be like, but how does this help me? <laughs> like, that's literally all my job is to do. And like yeah, if right. they have that question in their mind. You're like, like what the hell am I, like, what yeah, have what I, have I been doing? Like what have I been doing? There's got to yeah. be more, yeah. That's mate, that's crazy. Hey, I I had similar experiences with that as well, or like people that just like didn't value what they should have been valuing at that point in time. Yeah, it, yeah, it takes ages to understand what people value as well. Like, there's, yeah. there's stuff that is valuable. That's like, hey, you can't. For a lot, in my opinion, I I can't get onto that stuff until I've given them something that they value first, basically. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So if you had to, okay, so yeah, like, look, my recommendation is do the cert, get some runs on the board, have a client list for when you're graduating. Like if you know that like my like hindsight is so beneficial. So yeah. my advice comes from the 13 to 14 years now of experience directly in the industry. Um, 14, 13, 14 in fitness from coaching. That's that's how I started. Um, and then at least nine now with the Allied Health Connection as well. Um, like my advice is on is predicated on the back of that. So it's like, look, do you certain year one and two still do your dietetics or health science, nutrition, whatever you want to do, but like come out and have your clients ready to go. Yeah. Because you'll work out within that period if it's actually for you. And if it's not, then you're not going to spend another three or four years and 40 to $50,000 on HEX. Yeah. You might be pulling out at third year. So you've only got 15 to 20 grand in HEX, but you've been earning yeah, while you've been doing, doing it as well, which is a real pro. Yeah. Um, and then if it is for you, you're coming out and you've got three years, two years, three years or four years of like actual private-based client clinical work 
under your belt and a client base to start working with straight away, which is like one of the hardest things, right? It's like now yeah. that I've graduated as a dietitian, what do I do? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> like it covers that off pretty well. Yeah, so like that's that's my advice. Like I, I assume yours would be Mine's somewhat similar. similar. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, for sure. I, I like I'm not here trying to sort of like shit on any particular profession. I think that fitness and allied health both have too high a turnover rates yeah. at the moment. And I would personally like to see like a lot of dual members like cross pollinating across a few of these, because I think in doing so it enables us to provide a solution offsetting yeah. that turnover. Yeah. Because yeah, it's like, Hey, there might be 7,000 dietitians, but we're also seeing a real big turnover. I think it's like every 12 months, like there's quite a, I think it was like 70% of fresh grads aren't working yeah. in the industry. I don't know the stats, but that sounds right to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, this could just be some old wives' tale. Urban like, legend I, I is completely at, I look at my course and it, it is along those lines. Like, yeah. I know that I'm like in my fifth year, but like I see about a quarter of the people from my course are still working in, in, in the industry in some capacity. Yeah. Um, which therefore means what did the other ones do? Like, did they get a different degree? Did they like, what? what's, yeah, like it, it's a low percentage that stay on. Yeah. Sweet. All right, we're going to move on to... Do you have anything else you want to cover? No, I'm pretty, no do you want to talk about collagen? Yeah, let's talk about collagen. Yeah, let's do that. Because yeah. we're the blokes with the bad yeah. knees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm two months away from hopefully being out on the court or just over two months away. You're, you're filling in. Yeah, I, I'm on the court, but it's still questionable. Is it, is it improving or...? Yeah, it is improving, yeah. Um, it's slow and steady. Like, there's still still stuff that's working on, but, like, playing basketball, I, I think the last three games, four games, I've had zero pain, no pain the next day. Um, the milestone- Sorry, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at you. Do you remember the last game that I played and you were like, it was cooked. <laughs> and, 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 I, and you were like, oh, because I, I had it in the, in the um, I had it, I had it compression like bandaged and yeah. then I had the knee guard over the top. Yeah. And you're like, oh, show me. And I pulled down and you're like, how are you playing? And I was yeah. like, man, I don't even know. <laughs> right? like, yeah, it's just one of those things. And because I'm not an athlete because I just shoot. Yeah. I feel like I can still contribute when I'm hobbled, which is why I let it get so bad. Like right. if I was an athlete to start off with, it that, never that's what have. I was doing. My yeah. problem was I was like, I'd still want to defend or, you know, yeah. do so. I just get too competitive. Yeah. yeah. It's not, not a good time. So I'm, I'm only coming back when I'm good. Yeah. Yes. We both got cooked knees. We've both been supplementing with collagen. Yeah. And it's why I went down the rabbit hole. Like it's kind of that whole story of, um, like, you notice like how people talk about, good coaches aren't necessarily the best athletes. Yeah. They're the ones who've like tried like hell to figure out how to become yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. That's how I view it with like the collagen thing. Like if my knee injury lasted two weeks, I wouldn't have looked into collagen. Mm. I wouldn't have looked into the ins and outs of it, like how much of a difference it makes, when to take it, the dosages, all those kind of things. Cause I wouldn't have cared about it. But the fact that this has gone on for two years, fingers crossed it's almost solved, but like two years, that's two years of looking into this because I care about it yeah. basically. And you've you've got yeah. you've done a lot. So you've done a lot of like rehab without any other uh ergogenic yeah. interventions, then you've used like uh like biomechanical ergogenic interventions, then you've used medical with PRP. Yep. And then you've then like oral like oral supplementation um through other forms of supplementation as well as collagen yeah, as well. So sure. you, you've exhausted like a pretty big list yeah. as far as that goes as well. Yeah. Just for anyone sort of like watching who doesn't understand or know your backstory. Yeah. Yeah. So then you went down the rabbit hole of collagen. Yeah. Looks pretty good. Yeah, it looks good. So like the way of your, I suppose it's a long story, but like basically about, I don't know, two years ago or something like that, I, I was dismissing it. I thought it was just hype. 
Um, I had personally looked through the- Were you just like the, it's supplements, supplements are garbage? <laughs> Almost. It, it takes a bit of evidence to convince me. Yeah. Like I have to, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a skeptic. Yeah. I'm a natural skeptic. So I get it. Yeah. yeah. So skeptical to start off with, I had looked at the studies myself. Um, I'm not going to say I read every single one, but I tried going down that rabbit hole myself and it seemed mixed to me. Yeah. And then I heard- a guy named Dr. Keith Barr. I, I don't know exactly my opinion on him right now, but like I heard him talk about and highlight if you account for all these variables, every single study has ever been done is positive for collagen, for tendons, ligaments, all those kind of things. And like the variables were basically the dosage. So to be specific, what he was saying is 15 grams. 15 grams or over. Yep. Yeah, 15 grams or over. Um, vitamin C. Because yeah, in conjunction C with, yeah. Is important for collagen synthesis as part of one of the enzymatic steps. You can't have collagen synthesis without vitamin C in your system. Mm. Therefore, any fasted study with collagen is useless mm. because it's missing that. Um, and then timing. Just because such a large percentage of our body is made up of collagen, we can't just direct it where it needs to go. But the theoretical reasoning is if you have the collagen peptides and a lot of it breaks down to amino acids it seems like about 10 percent stays in peptide form the rest is in amino, amino acids. acids yeah and i'm just going to use my example patella tendinopathy so the patella tendon um if i'm doing rehab exercise that involves blood flowing to the tendon and we have the research showing that the amino acids peak in the blood about 40 to 60 minutes post consumption of the collagen it makes sense that because those amino acids are around there when you're stimulating that area that a little bit more is going to go to there and that has been measured about it's a bit variable, but like 70% to a 200% increase in collagen synthesis in the tendon. Local area, yeah. Yeah, in the local area. So we're like, hey, it actually is going to the area that we care about when it's done in this way. That doesn't mean, oh, you can't take a post-workout or doing it separately is going to do nothing. It's mm. just like we have the research showing that it does help when you take it before. We have zero studies on taking it post-workout. To me, it makes sense to have it before just based on the theoretical reasoning and the yeah. fact that we have the research on that. Yeah. Whereas if the research post-workout does happen and it shows it's positive, that wouldn't surprise me. But it's just we have this right now. And that's what yeah, yeah. And I'd roll with it as well. Plus yeah. you look at like digested times and all that stuff. If, we, if you say the timing peaks, what was it? 40 to 60 40 minutes? 40 to 60 minutes. So it's still in your system even post-workout. Yeah, most yeah exactly. Yeah. Like if, you, if you're trying to time the peak for when you've just finished and you've got all the blood there, yeah. then it makes sense to at least have it like pre or peri. Yeah. And like, the other- I, I, I would say ba like like the logical conclusion would be that post would be effective, but probably not as effective. Yeah. And like another thing, like this is going massively down a rabbit hole that I haven't fully bought into, but I think is interesting <laughs> yeah. to talk about is that <sighs> tendons, ligaments and stuff like that might not need to be trained in the same way as muscles. Like yeah. maybe they can be done in shorter bursts and certain sporting teams are- playing around with this idea of like, say instead of doing a half hour rehab session, maybe you could do 10 minute bursts, mm. six, oh, sorry, three times a day, every six hours apart. So I'm aware of at the Brumbies, I don't know if they're still doing this, but they were doing it when somebody has an ACL and when they start rehabbing, they have the collagen pre-workout three times a day for their rehab sessions three times a day. Mm. So mm. therefore how I'm like, oh, it increases collagen synthesis for 70, 200%. And say that's for a couple of hours. Yeah. If you're rehabbing three times a day, that could be that increase. Yeah, you're potentially, you know, Almost tripling your efforts, yeah. efforts, if not, you know, at least worst case, doubling it or getting 150% more if you did. Yeah. Yeah, one. Yeah, that's really interesting, hey. Um, sort of on that, so collagen claims outside of rehab, right? So we've got yeah. gut health. Yeah. Not that great for it. Research yeah. is conflicting. Um, then we've got hair, skin and nails. Yeah. Bit of the same. I think I think some of the stuff that I'm seeing now yeah. is, or and this is probably marketing, yeah. is that it's the peptide 
bonds or where the peptides are bonded in the, in the amino acid sequences yeah. of the collagen had the specific things, but I haven't seen any research that says oral consumption of this um, of this particular particular sequence yeah. or strain equals this outcome yeah. in 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 um, independent research. I've only seen that in yeah. research that's funded by a particular and company. Like so, yeah. yeah, and like I, I've had this thought too because like I, I was listening to an ATP science podcast to like broaden my perspective. Yeah, they'll say stuff I don't agree with. I'm like I might fact check this, mm. and it's like it's like they talked about heaps of research like that. Obviously, industry funded. I went to look for it. I was like, I can't find what they talked about. Man, like, right? It's really hard to yeah, find some of that stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it, like the company was Gillette. I'm not going to read it because it could be easy to find it. I just missed it. But I'm like, it's like they've done all this research behind closed doors and it's not easy to access. And you know what it's like with supplement companies as well with their funded research? Like the funded, re- like of the funded research, yeah. like, there's only a certain amount that's actually- Publication bias. Yeah, where yeah. it's like, well- if Actually being published. Like there's a lot that they withhold. Yeah, if, if you- There might be a lot of null hypothesis there. Yeah, like if you're, I'm not going to name names, but a collagen supplement company and you fund research and it doesn't show anything beneficial- you're not going to pay yeah, for why it. Would, yeah. Why would you publish it? Like, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't want to publish no, it. No, so you're only going yeah. to show the beneficial stuff. Yeah. So my bias, and I'm naturally, like I said, like I'm- Yeah, skeptical. I'm a natural skeptic. I would say two thirds of funded research is hidden and not published versus the third that is like pro. Yeah. And like that's factoring in as well. That's also factoring in caffeine and creatine and beta alanine efficacy because yeah. you can you can show positive outcomes with that probably all day for long. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think about that heaps and like, I think it's Lane Norton who I, I've seen him say it's something quite eloquently, like I can't remember the exact words, but it's something like, this doesn't mean you should be like, let's disregard all industry funded research. That would be a silly thing to do. Mm. And at the other end of the spectrum, my take is like, we still just need to be aware that this happens. Exactly. Like looking yeah. from both perspectives, it's nuanced, like both of them matter. Yeah, well, we look at the full picture and when you look at the full picture, then you see things sort of differently. Yeah, yeah. so that's it. I just... I. We, just before we finish, we're going to go upstairs, have a bit of fun in the kitchen and stuff. Um, but before we get onto that, I want to touch on the, um, you, we were talking about gut health before. Yeah. And just on gut health, I want to talk like supplements. We breezed over it. We've sort of spoken about that. Yeah. There's a huge, I guess, market presently. And yeah. it has been for probably the last two to three years on the effects of supplements and gut health. Yeah. Um, what's your sort of position on that? Yeah, it's a complicated one. Like, I don't think many of them are making much difference at all. Um, yep. Probiotics, yes, but my kind of standpoint on that is probiotics, when used for a specific purpose, yep. are beneficial. And then that takes it another step more difficult because it's like, how's the average person supposed to know what the specific purpose is and then which probiotics to take and stuff like that? Because mm. it's even something that like I struggle with a little bit. Once again, fifth year in this profession, I care about this stuff. Um, I try to learn as much as I can. And it seems like a lot of experts in the field are not overly specific. Like they don't go, hey, get this brand. Um, they, the most they might say is like, hey, focus on lactobacillus and make sure that there's this many colony forming units and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, seems there's, very- there's, there's three layers to effectively, like when you're looking at a probiotic that I've seen in the yep. research, there's three three layers. So it's like, uh, I forget the name. It's like species, genus, and then dose. Yeah effectively is that is that, is that pretty the much yeah one? and yeah. like like it, that's why like when i've been doing this upskilling and stuff like that on probiotics one of the things i noticed is pretty much every commercially available probiotic has this dosage mm. like it's it's meeting that minimum criteria all the ones yeah. in australia are pretty much mm. um so like that's already ticked you don't need to know too much about that but like 
It is a bit of an interesting one because it's like at the end of the day, like if you do have this diverse diet, you're eating enough fiber, all these kind of things, and you're already healthy, is adding a probiotic on top of it going to do anything? And that, that will they that haven't examined that because finding people that have 30 different- Yeah, like it's, it's rare to find that to yeah, start off. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Um, yeah, so like, I don't know, like that's one way to look at it. Like that's probably the big one. Any other supplements that come to your mind or anything like that? Like apple cider vinegar is not really doing anything. I think collagen's I, not really. Yeah, I think it's all. I, th- I think it's all garbage. I think like yeah. honestly, like you know, like without without shitting on, um, you know, like on someone and naming names, I'm going to shit on the product and the concept. Um, but there's this like you know these gut health formulas and all this stuff. They're all garbage. Um, yeah, I would say like the like like they've seen again like if people if people can't be bothered doing like cleaning your diet up or anything like that and you want to see yeah and you want to see like an acute positive response then probably take the probiotic uh, the lactobacillus bifidum bifidobacteria bifidobacteria um you have that and i think it's at least minimum 15 billion or something yeah something around have that, yeah. that for a week 60 yeah. percent of people see an Im- improvement from that so you yeah. don't have to change your diet you're hating hearing this right now right because you're like improve like, you th- no, it, no, like, improve I, I through food. That. like i do see that I, like I, I, yeah. I have a food first approach yeah as well you're probably way more food first than me but i'm just saying if you want to notice yeah. something if you're going to get a supplement at least get that don't get these yeah. other gut health formulas like, or whatever I suppose on the other end of the spectrum if you're doing this you're taking a supplement for multiple months and you don't notice any difference. If you're going to have a supplement, try that because there's going to be like a 60% efficacy. Yeah. Like you're going to 60%, six out of 10 people are it's going to see a, a positive. Yeah. yeah. But these other ones are just rubbish, but they're like literally called like a, like a scientifically engineered natural superfood. Yeah. That's the most oxymoronic concept that I've ever heard of. Like how can it be a natural superfood? And, and also, be, yeah, like, but yeah. this is, you know, and people are buying it, man. Like these companies are making millions. So, that that does my head in. Um, so yeah, the only thing I can think of is glutamine with athletes. Yeah, yeah. So like I was hearing about that. Like I I am not as familiar with glutamine and athletes, mm. but I know there's definitely benefits to it in there, some cases. There's been a lot of positive results demonstrated. Are you in, talking about in, like say endurance athletes? Endurance athletes, like, yeah, yeah. Gut tolerance basically. Gut tolerance. Yeah. And then also for athletes who are like weight restricted fighters, but again, they have a huge training load. So if you have a huge training load and getting in enough calories and energy is a problem and then you deal with gastrointestinal upset as a result of that that's where l-glutamine could be quite beneficial yeah. research has shown that so um you know reintroducing foods after a fight has made a weight cut yeah um i've noticed danny lennon has it in his rehydration plan yeah so um it, it, like there's been some um uh like positive stuff there um, as well as yeah, like triathletes, ultra endurance, Ironmen, um, all that stuff. It's, it's yeah. There's been some instances where they've shown that and demonstrated positive stuff. But other than that, yeah, I think basically that specific probiotic strain, L-glutamine. If that's if if you are that person, yeah. So if you're training twenty plus hours a week, fifteen yeah. plus hours a week, and it's intense and you're struggling to get food in, and like the last thing on that topic as well, the probiotic one as well. Like there's research on it with high volume endurance training like kind of an overreaching phase yeah if you put a probiotic in there it can reduce respiratory tract infections yeah yeah that's could, what i was gonna say yeah yeah i yeah. mean like it doesn't directly improve your performance but, but it you, helps you train more yeah. consistently which then helps your performance and that's such a clear-cut thing where i'm like hey at that stage we're not looking at like diverse food intake enough fiber. like that's a yeah. clear-cut this will help that's like that. magnesium as well like i think um uh what was what's that um E- eos or something the private private performance no, i wouldn't know 
um, group, I forget what they're called, and they were collecting so much data. They're working with a lot of like NCAA colleges and stuff. Um, oh, I, I can't believe I've forgotten this. Anyway, I, I'm going to cop shit for this, but this amazing private performance group that do a lot of performance stuff, they link with professional teams. Um, I'm thinking like ASOS or ESOS or something, and it's not that, but it's along those lines. Anyway, they get amazing data back and they notice, yeah, it was – it was like zinc deficiencies and magnesium deficiencies. Yeah. And then also like even if they were eating um, oily fish twice a week, they were like noticing like inflammation markers being a little bit higher. So like fish oils, magnesium, zinc, yeah. and then probiotic, they were like they're like for people training really, really hard and intensely, they're the ones to have. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And like I've done nutrient analysis on like gen pop clients for magnesium intake. And it seems like 60% of the recommended daily intake, assuming diet history is relatively accurate and we know mm. there's flaws in that. Um, like I did this for multiple years, every single client I had. Athletes are sweating more. Magnesium's yeah. lost through sweat as well. And it's kind of like if they're not doing something to offset that, offset that, yeah. whether it's through like having a really high magnesium diet or whether it's through supplementing, like mm. it's most likely going to be an inadequate intake or a suboptimal intake. Yeah, exactly. But if yeah. you're if you're Gen Pop, if your body fat is actually in like true body fat, not like you know people over inflating your ego to make it seem like you're leaner than what you are, but like if you're between like. 20% body fat or even I'm going to say 15% for a guy, 23% for a girl up to 30%. You don't need to be worrying about this. Yeah. Even if, even if like, unless, unless you have terribly low energy availability um, and your training load is through the roof, you wouldn't worry about a supplement. Like look food first and then high, 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 high training volumes and really, really, really like lean body um, body compositions will then like influence my recommendations for those types of supplements. But typically speaking, the majority of the population aren't at that point, like yeah. 80%. Don't worry about supplements, just nail your food. 